You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. think of how Ophelia's madness was played. Um, I thought it was really incredibly unsettling, which is what you want from that scene, really. Um, or both of those scenes, I guess. And um, I thought that the magnitude of the change in how she looked was really well done to sort of emphasize the fact that she had actually just completely lost her mind. I thought it was a really strong and powerful contrast with the way she was portrayed earlier as the picture of innocence and naivete. I mean, like the very simple uh, dresses uh, that she was wearing, uh, her very you know obedient and, and quiet uh, presence. She never really seemed to, to push back much before, which I think made her uh, like the wild dynamic change to when she uh, became mad that much stronger i mean yes but also i'm not sure that i would use the word innocent and obedient to describe her because she is very much kind of you know she does roll her eyes at laertes when he says says things i mean she does eventually say i'll obey to to the men in her life but she does you know she's also that that green dress that she's wearing i'm not sure that i would have called that like certainly the the clothing she's wearing at the beginning is fairly chaste and i wouldn't say that it's like shocking the green dress that she's wearing but it's also not the dress of a child um it's like to me she's played very much as a woman and then the way that the specific way that she goes crazy is in fact like sort of an expression of her sexuality like to me anyway i was like did they blink did they not blink and then as soon as she starts taking off her dress it's like okay they blinked although i confess um this is a this isn't a reflection on this production necessarily, but this is something that drives me crazy about Ophelia being driven crazy. Why does she have to rip all her clothes off and or appear in her underwear? Like, why is her going mad somehow also an opportunity for just us to, to slide in a weird degree of unsettling titillation there? You know, if one production did that, it would be shocking. Now that it's become a trope that is u- that is used on the regular, I actually find it a little tired. I don't need her to rip her clothes off. We already know they banged. Anyway. I mean, I, d- I don't disagree with you in principle, but I didn't know that they banged in this production until that happened. And I also don't think that it's the way that it happens is not really titillating. It's like, it's much more like a, you know, a confused sort of, like she's had sexuality and then like, look what's, and then everything went wrong. It's much more to me like, what happens in Buffy after she sleeps with Angel, where it's like, we had sex and then my boyfriend went crazy. Mm-hmm. And then that drives her mad. Then it is, oh, let's look at Ophelia's breasts. Well, for me, I mean, for me, it strikes me as all of a piece with the place more misogynistic messages, right? Yeah. So it just, sex made her crazy, the end. That's what the repeated emphasis of, you know, crazy Ophelia in you know, in her underwear, scantily clad, in her night clothes, in, in Kate Winslet's case, a wet white dress, you know. Yeah, and then often, usually up in Claudius's business while mm-hmm. not wearing many clothes. Yes. I feel like a lot of the things we saw in Ophelia's crazy scenes were not new, obviously, and You know, she sings and she has flowers and she skips around a lot usually. Sometimes she takes off her clothes. And most of the stuff, I was, I think the actress playing her was really talented, but was I a bit like, okay, yeah, I'm just rolling my eyes at the fact that Shakespeare like thinks this is what madness is and like there's so much singing. But, um, but one thing that I think was really new 
in this production was the fact that she was bleeding. Like, the fact that she had these, this, like, blood on her arms and on her chest and, I think, on her neck and, and like, the stains on her dress really indicated a distress that had been much greater than just, like, she's running around with flowers and singing. Like, I was like, okay, there's there's some messed up stuff happening. And I wish that they had pushed, like, that idea more into how they had staged it. But basically what you got was, like, she had more eyeliner on and was like, okay, like, I get it. Like, you went crazy and so now, like, you were wearing dark eyeliner. And then <laughs> she got hot. Except for this part where you're right, I hadn't actually thought about that. But you're right, it's the first time we that her crazy scene is, like, almost uglifying. Normally, crazy Ophelia is, like, sexy crazy, which yeah. is part of the problem. But you're right, I hadn't thought about it that way. The blood takes it to a different place. And also the weeds, too. It's not like it's not like she's handing out these delicate flowers, which Noemi pointed out before. It's like it's like she's gone into a field and grabbed like that's like really physical to have to like pull up all of those weeds. It's not just like pulling up a delicate flower. And then she comes in with her hands. Her arms are just like full of these bushels of, of weeds, I guess, that that also was to me like I guess when I like when she takes off her dress it didn't read to me as a as a particular I mean obviously it did read to me as somewhat sexual because that was when I was like oh, okay they point but I didn't read it as it being you know like drenched in water Kate Winslet well also the camera didn't you know linger really um they actually one thing I noticed was they never really showed like the bottom half of her body when she had taken off her dress, like it was just sort of, you know, her torso and, and it didn't try to make a point of like, let's now like look at her naked body. Um, which I really appreciated because I feel like a lot of times you do see that like, Oh, let's really emphasize the point that she's taking off her clothes. Here they're just like, did it. And she was wearing like a fairly functional bra that was like a t-shirt bra, not like a lacy revealing bra. Um, and she, in the one point, you're right, in the one point where you see her in long shot, it's only, it's uh, only for a second. She's clearly wearing pantyhose, which is the world's least sexy garment. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm prepared to concede half the point, but I still maintain, like, why does she always have to be naked when she's crazy? Let's find another way to say this. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about this production, and it sprang to mind because, Alex, you were talking about keeping up appearances. Uh, and Gertrude's effort to keep up appearances. One of the things that close-ups in this really managed to highlight was you'd see characters sort of nodding along to other characters as though to encourage the other character through a preset speech. The first time we see this is Polonius does it to Laertes when Laertes is giving his little flowery little speech to Claudius at the beginning there. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern do it at, to Claudius as well, as though they're performing kind of a set piece. And so part of it, I think, functions as a way to make these flowery speeches seem a little more normal, because if they sound rehearsed, it's because as between the characters, they are. And the other thing it does is highlights the fact that in this play, everybody is performing for everybody else. And people group into little teams to put on a show, which just adds to this impression of a surveillance state, you know, and when Hamlet says, now I am alone, that's suddenly especially meaningful. Because suddenly Hamlet isn't performing for anybody except maybe Hamlet. Well, I think that's even when Hamlet and Ophelia are at the um, where we need to watch the players. You you get that this sense of him behaving in this bizarre way publicly that's different, and you can sort of see like she's tolerating it, but it's like because of some private relationship that we're not privy to. I mean. Certainly that, but I was thinking more along the lines of like, there's literal, there's places where you can, you can see characters almost prompting each other through speeches. Yeah, yeah. And there's this sense that not only, not only is there an atmosphere of mistrust, it's like, there are shifting allegiances, and there are small teams playing against larger teams, there are coils within coils everywhere. And you can see it in the way people are sort of going, all right, do it how we talked about it. You know, right. 
Well, and, and there's this sort of interesting implication that like Gertrude and Claudius are sort of like an old married couple in some ways, like, but also in ways that it's revealing that they're not. Um, so for example, he's like telling when first he, everybody looks towards Hamlet at the beginning because they think that now that he's dispatched the, uh, ambassadors that they're, that he's going to deal with Hamlet. And then he turns his like Laertes and everybody's like, what? And then. There's also the part where um, once he finally does get to Hamlet, he's like talking about the university. He can't remember Wittenberg and <laughs> Gertrude has to tell him where he's going to school. And then, of course, they play the way Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come in. And this, this is not like a new interpretation. This is done before that. The reason why Gertrude says Guildenstern and Rosencrantz is because Claudius makes them up. Yeah, I love that. That like gentle uh no, this one's Guildenstern and this one's Rosencrantz, which is really helpful because I can never tell them apart. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, on on that note, uh, and I, I think it's, I, I think one of the reasons why that, I think that I, I didn't fully clue in on that when I was watching it my first time, but I think you make a good point about uh, the teams working together and that uh, a, a lot of it, I think the reason it's evident in this production is because of the filming, I think. I think they were I was very happy that they did a lot of reaction shots uh, and left the space to be able to see the reaction to the performances. I thought they, they framed most of the scenes very well. And I mean, one that comes to mind is uh, Hamlet with the ghost uh, early on when the cameras pulled back far enough to see the, the ghost towering over Hamlet kneeling on the ground. And yet the clarity is clear enough to see Hamlet's face and the detail of him you know, in this bewildering, overpowering moment. Uh, and they didn't need to do an extreme close-up shot, which I think just highlights why it's, why it's such a mistake in other productions that they feel the need to crop everything else out when you can, you know, get just as much of the emotion uh, with, a, with a wider shot. Yeah, I think they do a really good job of directing your eye. But for me, it, did, it never felt like they were directing my eye, but leaving something out. I know MA kind of said the opposite. So, um, but to me, I think that they they had things that they wanted you to look at. Often it was reaction shots. It wasn't just who was talking. And that spoke a lot. And I think one of the ways that, one of the sort of conspiratorial things that I liked a lot was just the, like how close Horatio and Hamlet were. Like not, they, they would stand together, but then they would also get these like two shots together where they were telling each other private jokes or, you know, having a side as part of a bigger scene. And then that was quite telling or, you know, when Gertrude and Claudius are like kind of barely tolerating Polonius and they're giving each other looks as he's trailing off and they're like, is he ever going to finish? But, you know, we like him and the same with, you know, Ophelia and Laertes who are giving each other looks about Polonius and all of the players giving each other looks like, will this kid shut up? He doesn't know how to act. But I think that that was really well done through. I think I agree that how they filmed it was quite quite good in how they did that. I, I could see that being able to do that on stage, but they did a really good job of translating that. What did we think about the the farce before the play within the play? The clowns before the play within the play? It was super uncomfortable. I don't know. It was uh, It was quite visually interesting, I thought. But, uh, yeah, it, I mean, which I think it's good that it was uncomfortable. Like it's meant to be, it's this very strange, off-putting, unexpected little dumb show. Yeah. It was very weird. I mean, it felt to me much more explicitly demonstrating the story than I think other productions I've seen where it's sort of a little vague or, or a little more performative. And so I, mostly I was just surprised how, Claudius didn't react at the dumb show alone because it was pretty blatant what they were uh, what they were demonstrating there. Oh, so this is interesting. This is something that I um, that was on the audio commentary about about this section that Patrick Stewart was apparently very clear that it was during during this the dumb show that um, Claudius figures out what Hamlet's up to and Hamlet misses it. Hamlet is still like gloating about his plan and like playing around in Ophelia's lap, but he misses the point when Claudius goes, oh, I see what you're up to, and now I'm going to be stoic. So by the time that Hamlet gets around to actually filming him, Claudius is already performing. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. 
And they showed that very nicely with the filming because uh, they have that shot of the little plastic thing being inserted into the actor's ear and you can see Claudius. That's my contribution. But you're right, because at the very end of that scene, I mean, Claudius Perry directly goes up to Hamlet and, you know, sort of points his finger at the camera. And, and, and I mean, from the end reaction, I, I missed it at the Claudius's reaction in the dumb show, because at the end, I mean, it didn't seem, Claudius didn't seem particularly perturbed to me uh, as much as, uh, you know, sh- he seems shaken to the core in other productions here. He seems much more controlled. So that does help explain it, that it was, you know, very performative and uh, intentionally controlled. And this is one of the things that I actually really liked about Patrick Stewart's Claudius and in ways that it picks up on the text in ways that I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, one of the things that Grant Doran mentioned, which is true, but I guess I hadn't really thought about, is that Claudius's first act that we see him do is to dispatch the ambassadors to Norway, that his way of acting about things is diplomatic. And everything about him is very controlled and he's all about sort of veneers and services and being polite and controlled, which is very different from Hamlet Sr., who, of course, we see in military garb, who is this great military force. And so then the fact that Claudius also has this controlled reaction to the the players is is also is consistent and interesting and different from, you know, you often see him going nuts and angry. and this made a lot of sense that he was really quite controlled. And then to me, that also meant that by the time we start to see the layers beneath what's going on, you know, in Act 4 and Act 5, that is quite strong because, like, Claudius' guys, like, every scene is actually helping us to better understand Claudius and is developing his character in a way that I often don't see. Even, if, even with relatively good Claudius, it's often they're still kind of mustache twirly or we know everything we need to know about it scene and then we're just sort of waiting for things to happen whereas i don't know that you feel that it's kind of a surprise when you find out he still feels guilty and it's also kind of a surprise when you find out that he's got all this nefarious stuff going on in the basement because he was so charming and he's so likable too and i think something michael billington wrote in his review like too bad about the murdering (laughs) (laughs) and the other thing that greg doran pointed out which i thought was interesting and and is clear within the production as far as how things develop is that by by the end of Act Act Three, Polonius, sorry not Polonius, Claudius and Hamlet are even in the sense that they both killed one person, and this production really turns on that and how it changes Hamlet and Hamlet's behavior in a way that I often don't see. Like often it's just sort of, oh he made a mistake or whatever. Whereas I think there's much more sense of, oh you killed someone too now. You're, I mean you didn't kill the king, but you're not you don't have the same moral high ground as you think as you'd like to think you have. If we want to talk a little more about Claudius, I thought he was pretty exceptional. I thought Patrick Stewart, you know, delivered a performance for yeah, for a lot of the points you mentioned, Alex, and that uh, I mean his his line readings I thought brought a lot of color to the text. Uh and that he was yeah, the uh in control through the early scenes, obviously a, a powerful force responding well with Gertrude it, it definitely in a position of of power over over Hamlet uh in which you you could see you know Hamlet's rebellion was was almost a chafing against this more powerful force they they, they most certainly weren't equals in the uh in the play yeah in some ways he outshone David Tennant at least in terms of his line readings like I found I guess it's it's sort of mean to say because Patrick Stewart is Patrick Stewart. But I found Patrick Stewart's line readings like consistent throughout, you know? There was never a moment where he said something and I was like, I don't quite buy it, or I'm not quite sure what you were going for there. And especially during act two of the play, I felt that David Tennant was actually a little bit uneven. Yeah, I I agree, kind of. And just <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um I think, yeah, I think he's just an amazing Claudius. And I think the the most amazing thing is just the way in which his character is constantly developing and has so many nuances, which even when I've seen what I would have thought was a good Claudius, it is not that strong. And it's part of it. It's, I mean, it's a lot Patrick Stewart, and it's also a lot just the way that the whole production is set up around him 
as you really get him as this force who has changed, fundamentally changed the way Denmark now is. And, and thus has, has had this huge impact on everybody else's lives in a way that I haven't really seen before. And that also sort of gives him power. And I do really like the, the way that he is very controlled. And I, and I agree that all of his line readings are really, are really clear and really great. But yeah, I mean, he's Patrick Stewart. He was, he was bad. He hung out in the RSC with Ian McKellen and, you know, everybody else for years in the eighties and was, and John learned to speak the speech from John Barton. So I think my, I don't think I have a problem per se with any of, like, I think David Tennant made all of Hamlet's lines sing, but I think sometimes there were nuances of Hamlet that I found missing. So I really like how he delivers things and I, I really like his vocal range. And I think he pulled out certain lines and certain ways of saying them that I've never heard before. And that really, opened up parts of the text to me and, and especially the humor. But I, I'm not sure I really bought that he was really on the verge of suicide throughout, that he was much, he was kind of a chipper and in, like he could, he was in some ways like the polar opposite of Rory Kinnear, who was just like, I'm trying to stay in bed. I'm depressed and everybody is coming in and barging in on him. And I bought him as, I think there were problems with, I mean, I think David Tennant's actually, illuminate certain problems with that production but um at the same time i'm not sure that i really thought that he was really on the verge of suicide and i think that's a bit of a problem i mean i don't i would disagree with you there in that i think that it's perfectly acceptable to play hamlet as a guy who's thinking constantly about suicide but never actually going to do it you know because part of the whole point of the to be or not to be speech is not I'm, I'm this close, you know, I'm right on the edge. I have a plan. Someone, you know, this would be the time that I should probably go see someone. Part of the whole point, or you can read it that way. And certainly I think David Tennant did was to deliver it as like, there's no real point in doing it. Like I'm never going to do it. I, I think it's, it's almost like he's, he's so fatalistic that not even suicide seems like an option to him, which I kind of liked, you know? Yeah. And I think part of where I, I, I can see what you mean about his performance being inconsistent in act two, but though I'd like to hear more about what specifically you're thinking of, because to me it was consistently inconsistent. Like it was a deliberate choice. And I don't mean the way we were like Benedict Cumberbatch was inconsistent and David was like, but, but I thought that was on purpose. And we were like, no, Lindsay Turner had no clue what she was doing. I don't mean it like that. I mean it that throughout the, the play, part of what you're doing is you're seeing different sides of Hamlet and different versions of Hamlet on purpose that, with certain people, he becomes the old Hamlet. And with certain other people, he's the new Hamlet of my life has been ruined. And I think one of the things that he does with Claudius, and one of the interesting things about the way that they play Claudius is so diplomatic, is that in that first scene where he's, you know, he's seething, but he's very, con- Hamlet is very contained when he's talking about more kin, a little less than, and, uh, and so then when he takes on his antic disposition, it sort of frees him to bring out the vitriol that he's had all of this contained anger that he couldn't really, because how can you, because you can't fire anger at somebody who's going to be controlled. They don't give you anything back. But once he decides he's going to go crazy is now he can, you know, he can say everything. He can say the things that he couldn't say when he was Hamlet. But now that he's decided to be, you know, pretend to be nuts, he can be as sarcastic and sardonic and cruel as he wants to be. And so you sort of see that side of him. And then you also see the side of him that's, you know, at times you see the side of him that is what he once was, the sort of carefree student. And at some points you see the side of him that was, that's the bratty prince. And you get the sense, especially with the players of somebody who, you know, used to have run of the land and that he was, he was the center of everything and the center of the universe and was allowed to, you know, tell the players, give the players instructions about things he knows nothing about and think that that's totally fine. And so I felt like you kind of got to see these different sides of Hamlet and then, but then that in some ways is, doesn't give you the same sort of through line of this is who Hamlet is now, but I thought that that worked. But I don't know if that's what you mean about where you thought he was inconsistent. Maybe it was something else. I think what I really liked about uh, Tennant's performance 
was that it had a really clear development in act one uh, that I don't think you always get in a performance uh, starting with the like racked with grief sobbing uh, to two solid flesh right at the beginning just sort of one of the things I did not like but anyway yeah I mean the yeah, I I can see that it, the performance didn't fully fully sell me on the on the grief there. But you you go from you know theoretically you go from this this really grieving boy child to seeing the ghost and something in him snaps where he you know ends up slashing his hand uh, to to remember what the sort of bond he's he's made with his ghostly father. But what's interesting is that I think what they did really well here is that's very distinct from the antic disposition that that clearly changes him. It gives him focus. It gives him determination. It brings this vast new level of anger that was definitely not present before. So it changes him. But then on top of that is layered on occasion, the antic disposition. Uh, and all of this is in the context of, you know, the very clear surveillance state where he has to be constantly performing because he knows someone's always watching like in, in the get thee to an unary scene. Uh, I mean, he, you know, they make it very blatant that he becomes aware of being surveilled. And, but he also never seems to get to a point of real cruelty to Ophelia in that scene that other performances do. He, he says it and he, you know, sounds angry, but it never gets to that very, you know, direct, cold, harsh, emotional attack on Ophelia that other productions have done. There's also special affection when she's handing him back the letters. And looking back at that is like you, I mean, I really felt like, oh, he actually sent these letters and like he wrote love letters. Like he, they had a relationship in a way that I often don't get that out of that scene. I think the other thing that you're pointing out about the, his different levels is that you also get with, he has this other position with, when he's with Horatio, he, they have this sort of aside giggling kind of inside joke. And often he's, you know, quite snobby because he's saying nasty things about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and that's not the Antigus vision. That's just like I, I am smart than they are. I know it, and I'm going to make jokes to Horatio. It's just him being such a little shit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, one point of Tennant's performance that I really loved was his soliloquy just after the players leave the room, um, where he sits down on the ground and sort of says, you know, talks about how how startling the performance of the, I think it's the first player or the player king or whatever gives, which actually was brilliant. And is the first time I've had to sit through that whole speech and have not fallen asleep. <laughs> um, but, um, and that, that moment where he sits down and he just sort of says, I can't believe that that actor could bring on all of, all of those emotions just from, from reading lines that, that aren't real, that, that he can sort of, put this emotion on and um one of the things i've been interested in about hamlet uh since i studied it in uh postgrad was the idea that there were two things that were changing hugely at the time that hamlet was written which one, one was uh acting in terms of how actors went about their craft uh in terms of going from an idea of a character as a sort of a stock Part that you that you put on that's that's not representation of a person but a representation of an archetype to a more nuanced updated kind of more what we'd see you know nowadays performance of someone who has a personality and who has reasons behind their choices and at the same time probably for the same reasons the idea of what the self was was expanding so it wasn't just that you had a person who had a position in the world and their entire existence was geared towards that position. So sort of a feudal idea of the world, um, but that you had an internal reality. And so, you know, which you get and, you know, I could be bounded in a nutshell, in a nutshell and count myself the king of infinite space. And so in that moment where, where Hamlet is sitting contemplating this speech, I really felt that coming through, which I love because I think it's, it's something to, that it's easy to miss, especially when it's set in the modern world or, or a more modern um, setting. Um, that sense of Hamlet coming to terms with the fact that he has a consciousness and internal reality that is entirely his own. And so sort of jumping 
between the different versions of himself uh, really, I thought, emphasized that quite well, that he he performs one way for his, his mother and one way for Claudius and one way for Horatio and Ophelia and everyone else, but always comes back to what is my internal reality? What is, what is my personality? Who am I actually? And um, I thought that definitely some of the strange kind of jumps can be explained through looking at it from that lens. And this is sort of just a slight tangent, but that you're bringing up for me as you're talking about the historical context is I believe this is that Hamlet was written like after, I can't remember when exactly was Copernicus's discovery that the earth orbits around the sun. Um, but I think it was before this. And it's sort of, that's kind of interesting if you think about, because you can sort of think about the play as being kind of about that in some way, in the sense that everything orbited around Hamlet and now suddenly it doesn't. Now he's finding out that he's not the center of the Denmark universe and that everything's going around Claudius and he's not okay with that. And that's like destabilizing him. But that's this very thing is part of the reason why the very subtle changes to Horatio's role drive me up the wall. Because just as you said, Caitlin, like you've got this guy that's working through performing so many variations on the self and then coming to understand that there there remains an integral self within, you know, and he's coming to grips with that. But part of what's supposed to make Horatio's character so special and so distinct in this play is that everyone else in this play is performing for other people and a slave to their passions. And Hamlet at one point says to Horatio something like, give me the man that is not passion slave, as in that is, that is your finest quality. You are not passion slave. And part of the point of what makes Horatio a valuable friend to Hamlet is that he's supposed to be outside all of the stuff that Hamlet's working through. But by making Horatio basically Hamlet's sidekick, as this production does, you know, Horatio's just as invested in everything as Hamlet is. You can see them colluding in the way that they perform together. You can see it in the way that they remove any suggestion of division between Horatio and Hamlet. You know, you don't have that character who is not passion slave. You do not have that character who remains passionless. And I mean, there's that whole thing about how Rosencrantz and Guildenstern talk about Fortune's Wheel and about how they're in Fortune's secret parts um, because they are not happy and that they are not unhappy. Horatio, it feels, it's always felt like to me like Horatio is the character for whom, on whom nothing turns in this play. He's supposed to be the only one who's genuinely a dispassionate observer because he's got no dog in this fight. If you make him too close to Hamlet, you lose any element of that. I mean, I, I think you have a good point. And I'm sort of wondering what you think about the costume choices for Horatio. Because one of the things that does sort of mark him as an outsider is the fact that he's wearing that kind of like academics blazer. And he's clearly not, doesn't have the kind of finery that everyone else in the court has. And he's also, but he also doesn't look like a, he is not Horatio the hobo. Like he's, you know, he's respectable. It's not like, a lot like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's actually. Is it? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it is kind of casual. Yeah. Mm, sports coat, nice pants. But does that, do you think that that in any way gives him like a sort of division from the court or, or it doesn't really matter because he's just hanging with Hamlet so much? I think it's a marker of socioeconomic status, but that's it. He's, I mean, if anything, I hadn't thought about it until now, except to note like, oh, that guy dresses like a retired professor. But now that you've set me thinking about it, given the similarity between his costume and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's, it positions him as someone it's similarity to two people who are hangers on highlights the fact that he is Hamlet's sidekick rather than creating a division between him and the rest of the court. Well, and there's also, he has a lot of lines where he calls Hamlet, like my Lord, and he has this deferential language, but then Hamlet kind of returns it by treating him as an equal, as opposed to treating him as a sidekick. I mean, they're always friends, right? No matter what the production, they bear great love for one another, but there's a difference between them being close on a personal level and then being on the same side, you know? And the way Horatio gets involved and implicated in every semi-shitty thing Hamlet does while Horatio is on the stage. I mean, the making fun of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is just the most obvious one, but it, it removes any suggestion of, of, of distance between them. 
it makes Horatio just another character, and therefore I, I he sort of loses his force for me, you know. Well, and also, you know, at the end, without having the the monologue he needs to explain everything that happened, that that removes that role from him too, which leads me to a wild conjecture I'll throw out there and see what anyone else thinks. That does the camera play the role of that impassioned observer in this production? Uh, now, I mean, there's there's pros and cons. Obviously, at some points, it takes on the role where Hamlet and Polonius are speaking directly to it, but. In many ways, the camera is less sympathetic to Hamlet in this production than I think I've seen before. It seems a little more distant in framing the different scenes. What do you guys think? I mean, I think that's an interesting point because I, I saw, so the Hamlet that I saw at Cal Shakes, the uh, swimming pool that was full, like the empty swimming pool full of trash, basically. What they did is Horatio ended up as sort of a chorus character where he kind of appeared in every scene and he was just quietly sitting at the back, not participating, judging. And then you get that judgment of his at the end that he is like sort of observed as a dispassionate um, observer throughout. And now you get his, his final sort of stake in it. So in that sense, I think that that would not be inconsistent with a reading of Horatio. And I could see how that kind of happens, but on the other hand, yeah. So I could sort of see how that's, taking Horatio's place. On the other hand, I think there's this, there's definitely something going on that I don't 100% understand as far as like what it means to tell, tell your story and who, who has control over the story. Because I think one of the interesting things this production does is, you know, as soon as the players arrive, Hamlet has made this decision that he is going to tell his story, that he is going to document things and he's going to have his side. And I think that ends up bringing in a lot of power when he finally says to Horatio, you know, as he's dying, like, please tell my story that like that, that the importance of telling the story seems to be something that he has understood earlier and has been working towards telling this as opposed to being like, oops, everything's screwed up. Now I better, hopefully somebody will tell my story that at some point it becomes like having the truth get out or having his side of the story get out is more important than, you know, killing Claudius that like his revenge is his story or that, that ultimately his action has been documenting, um, even though he hasn't killed anybody. Well, I mean, he killed people, but not his, he didn't kill his goal, right? <laughs> like, and so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn on it because then also sometimes it did kind of feel, but on the other hand, sometimes it felt like a documentary crew was like following Hamlet around mm-hmm. just like partly because of the way that Polonius is like still on my daughter like and or the way that Hamlet starts talking to the camera um or the way like sometimes I just didn't know whose perspective the camera was in and so sometimes it felt it was kind of bizarre like it sort of felt to me like he had a documentary crew following him around and then sometimes it was like the camera didn't seem to be important it was just you know like the camera itself wasn't important it was just it faded to the background other times it really drew attention to itself I honestly don't think that they thought about this based on what they said in the <laughs> In the uh, audio commentary, it's like having a coherent message for what the camera was supposed to be doing. Like they just had different purposes in each scene. But the end result, anyway, I'm not sure what it was. I think it's complicated by the fact that this is a the stage production started out having cameras within the production, and then by filming it, they also added an extra layer of cameras, and they didn't sort of account for the fact that these two different types of filming are doing two different types of work because they clearly had like a purpose that they mapped out for the cameras that appear within the production itself. But then just as Alex said, you never get a sense that they have a strong idea of what the camera is supposed to be doing when they're filming the production. And I don't even think they thought about how these two different modes of reproduction and documentation intersected. So I think you could very well be right about the camera, at least cameras within the film. Uh, cameras within the production performing that role of dispassionate observer. However, I think if that's what they were going for, they've unwittingly complicated it by adapting it for TV. I can agree with that. I mean, we haven't finished talking about the performances, but maybe we can come back to them since we're sort of on this right now is, I mean, part of what I'm wondering is what do you think of this? I mean, we talked about how it's worked or hasn't worked in the filming. 
But what do you think about this as, as an approach to capturing theater? Because this is quite different from, say, National Theater Live, where they're like, we're going to cap one night, we're going to come in, we're going to capture it, and we're going to broadcast it to cinemas, or even the Globe Theater, where they're going to give you a DVD of it. But again, they have, you know, rehearsed it and decided we're going to, we're going to film it on the stage, and you're going to be able to see the stage, you're going to see the groundlings, and that's one way of capturing the performance. Versus, say, you know, in some ways you could, you could, talk about, you know, Coriolanus that, that Ray Fiennes did or um, Much Ado that Ken Brennan did or Henry V that Ken Brennan did or, um, you know, Ian McKellen's Richard III. Like, all of those were things that had been done on the stage first. At least the main character had played that on the stage. And then, you know, they might have had different people in the supporting characters. Whereas what they did with this is they had done, they had the whole company, they had done the stage production for over a year or almost a year at, at the RSC and then, like, Four months later, they found this like school that they shot in and they spent three weeks turning it into this sort of bizarro hybrid between film and theater. And I mean, one of the things I'm wondering about is I think something that Danny mentioned when we were doing the Coriolanus episode is, is that it's really hard to watch these recorded performances because you're not in the cinema and you're also sorry, you're not in the theater, but also you're not watching a film. And so it's sort of like you're watching a documentary of what you're do of what they're doing and you're not really in the in the show. And so it can be kind of exhausting to do it. And and we are, you know, we had arguments with when we were doing the other Hamlet episode with David about what's, you know, our close ups good because they make you more part of the performance, but then you don't see the blocking. And so we had all these complaints and problems with, you know, live capture of performance. And in some ways this is a bit more purposeful because they're they're like, we're going to take some time to film it. But on the other hand, we're also complaining about how certain things didn't translate. I don't know what, if I'm wondering if people have views about which one is better or if they just have different, you know, advantages or disadvantages or. My thoughts on this are colored by the fact that I live in New Zealand and would never be able to see these productions if they didn't find one way or another of putting them on on something that I can like <laughs> stream or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think I've ever had a, a seen a production, any, any kind of filmed version of a play, whether it's the, just in the, in the theater with the audience or the um, version they did with this production where it's, it's bothered me that much, that, that kind of disconnect usually just because I am literally that excited to be able to see such good theater because, uh, yeah, it very, very rarely makes the way down here. Um, and actually I was really excited recently to realize that um, the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, King Lear, which was in like 2007, um, did a tour of the world and they came to Auckland and I got to see them and they also did a sort of slightly pseudo film play version, much I think it's quite – done quite similarly to um, the way Hamlet's done and it I've watched a few seconds of it and it's definitely weird and off-putting but again it's like I'm generally just so happy to be able to witness such great performances that I get caught up in the in the characters and and the line readings and stuff and I just I stop noticing the uh, mechanics of of how it's been filmed so much I think I, to I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you that I, I think they should capture it. And I guess part of my question is how, how should they capture it? Because I mean, I'm the same way. Like I, I'm, I'm not as remote as New Zealand, but you know, there's a ton of productions that I've seen through National Theatre Live or the RSC that I just wouldn't have been able to see. Like I was, you know, I had, I wasn't thinking about traveling to London on the regular one. This was when this came out and I couldn't have made it to Coriolanus to see Tom Hiddleston Coriolanus and, I was dying to see King Lear with the Simon Russell Beale and Mendes. And, you know, I was a starting grad student. I couldn't have just gone to London for the weekend to go see that. So to me too, it's like, these are, and these are productions that, you know, fundamentally changed the way I thought about these, these plays and were really wonderful things to have access to. I guess part of what I'm wondering is, I think we all agree that documenting is good. The question is, how should they document? Should they do a live, performance live you know just capture the live performance should they do this kind of 
pseudo hybrid. Then there's also what Julie Taymor did, which we'll discuss at some point, um, which I guess most none of you have seen. But basically, she directed the the film version of her of her production, but she shot it live over the course of four nights and then edited it together and picked up later to do close ups where they were doing like film acting. So it was sort of like this, except more obviously theater because it wasn't like they went to a different set. Or you know, should should we should they be like? Well, let's find money to spend three weeks and or four weeks and make a film of it. And, you know, in this, in this, in the way that sort of, you know, Ray Fiennes had played Coriolanus on the stage and then decided, you know, I'm not done with this. I want to make a movie. And then he had made like a real movie. But at the same time, he didn't have his whole company with him when he did that. I'm going to vote in favor of the hybrid. I think it was really largely successful. And of course, I'm, I'm comparing it directly to the NT Live production, the Cumberbatch production of Hamlet that we that discussed on an earlier episode. But that the problem for that with me was that the staging was just so ill-suited to a film production uh, and the set as well that it was just frustrating seeing how much was being lost with the translation to film. Whereas here they were able to make really conscious choices with every single scene of how to do it. And I'm actually even going to vote for hybrid production over a, a pure film interpretation and i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to articulate it clearly but shakespeare's meant to be performed on a stage i think and you know there's a level of artifice in the performances and a, a degree of stage performance that uh i feel is often lost in a in a purely sort of you know cinematic treatment of the film it uh and and it, i think Maybe it's just because directors feel forced to try and do more with it. If they know they're creating a film off the top, they're going to, you know, go for more elaborate sets or outdoor settings and uh, try and add their own, you know, directorial touch. Whereas what I loved about this production particularly was its simplicity uh, in allowing the the sets to be uh, evocative yet basic. Uh, doing sort of just enough to allow the performances to shine, not, I mean, maybe this, this contradicts the earlier point. They, they didn't overthink the camera work, which means that there's sometimes, you know, inconsistencies between scenes, but it really seems like on a scene by scene basis that is thought, how best can we capture this scene and demonstrate what's going on? And that's what I, that's what I loved about this, uh, this production particularly. It felt like it gave room for the production and for the performances to breathe. Uh, and just sort of exist in this in this state without a lot of interference in between, which I don't think we would have got if we had just captured the the RSC production on stage, uh, or if they had decided to try and do more with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is what you have here is somewhat similar to the Julie Tamar in the sense. I mean, it's different because they shot it for film, but the as far as who's directing it is that Greg Doran directed the 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 stage production and then the film was a collaboration between him and the cinematographer. So it's still very much his directorial imprint and him saying, you know, this is the moment I want to capture as opposed to having some outside camera crew being like, well, I wonder what moment we'll capture here. And, you know, did they talk to the director? Did they think about it? And my sense is they don't talk to the director because Julie Taylor was complaining about how her like operas had been captured and how, you know, that's what the moment that I wanted and they should be looking here instead. And, and so that's why she decided to do it herself. And I also sort of agree with you in that the nice thing about the hybrid is that you still get, even if some of the things don't totally work on film, you still get a sense of what the production would have been like. Um, you know, even like you get a sense of how it could have been done on stage and you can make those leaps without requiring a huge amount of, like without requiring annotations, I guess. Like you can guess how, you can kind of see how it works on a stage and you can see how this works and it allows you but it's not as awkward as just trying to capture it live and the other thing that, the, that this particular one is good at which some of the national theater productions and this is more a function of national theater than anything else is that these you know the rsc does their productions for like a year so by the time that they actually film it which is after the run this not only do these actors know their parts but the company knows their parts in a way that you don't get with say you know, any of the Shakespeare productive films that have been made, you know, it might be the director and the, and the, the lead actor, actress, and maybe one or two others were all together for the stage production, but the cast itself did not have, you know, a year together doing, doing, doing the production and getting it like in their bones. And so in that sense, kind of 
like it more. Which is funny because I avoided watching this for like five years because I saw the first five minutes. It was like, this is weirdly artificial and it's kind of like a stage and not a stage. And I don't know what I'm watching. And so I kind of just like gave up on it and started complaining about how the RC is doing things. <laughs> um, I think overall it, uh, it really d- actually depends on the play and the production. Like, um, I found a copy of Eve Best's Much Ado, uh, Beatrice and Much Ado, um, at the Globe and, it just works so well because there's so much. I mean, you're at the Globe, you're going to do audience interaction, and the the mood of the audience is is so infectious in the production that it it just makes the whole thing even more enjoyable than it usually is. And uh, but I think having an audience present in this production would have been distracting. Um, so I think, yeah, it really depends. I I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule. I think it. Um, some productions are going to work really well with a with an audience and others aren't. And the other thing too that I think is, I mean, picking up on the point about how it doesn't have to be high concept and also Craig's point that they were sort of designed for the theater. I think, I mean, what they're doing now at the RC is they're capturing it live like they do with the Globe and the National Theater. And I saw Greg Doran who directed this, his um, Henry IV Part One and Two, and Henry V. And one of the things that I really liked about about all of them, but in particular Henry V, is he likes to do sort of an empty stage. And so, um, which is, you know, very Elizabethan. But that kind of created new things for me that I hadn't necessarily seen or noticed in, say, the Hollow Crown Henry V, that when his Henry V, because the only thing that was on stage was, you know, the throne, I was very aware of the way in which the throne was sort of this artificial thing, and that it was just a throne because we decided it was a throne. And that, you know, like the whole thing about ceremony and the ceremony that is required in order to become a king, for me, came alive because the stage was empty and it wasn't, we weren't in a, an actual palace. I mean, I guess that's going back to the whole idea that the onstage room is a metaphor for something else. And though it doesn't 100% translate, you do at least still sort of get that in a way that if you had made a film of it, you couldn't just do it all in that one room and with very, few props it just wouldn't seem realistic i think that creating a way to make theater accessible is super important obviously and that theater and film are both incredible and have different strengths and weaknesses so if you're adapting theater for for film that any of these hybrid situations are something where there's a pointed directorial eye to how you're doing that instead of just filming live is going to be better um, but I also think in, in regard to your point earlier about, um, pure, like Shakespeare's met for the stage. I've done tons of Shakespeare on stage and I love it, but I think some productions or some films can be really incredible. Like the Romeo and Juliet Zeffirelli film, I think in what 68, I like, <laughs> I haven't seen it for a few years, but I remember really loving it. And I think there's some things you can do. We're giggling because we that was our last episode like oh, really? two weeks ago and shredded shreds. Um <laughs> but uh, I yeah, I, th- too, I think so. that um some films can like I think like I said earlier, I think there's benefits to film, there's benefits to theater, and that it's worthwhile taking advantage of whichever medium you're doing and what you can do in it to best tell the story. Yeah, I, I mean I agree with you. I think there are things that you can, I think that there are ways, because film is very much, you know, a modern medium. And if you're thinking about how do you make Shakespeare accessible or in, you know, for in the present day, I think part of that is you can't just not make any films of it. And I think that there, we found ways in which the films were very effective, whether it was, you know, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V or, um, you know, when there were things about the Zeffirelli one that were you were very good and things about, you know, Baz Luhrmann's either. There's no way you could do that Romeo and Juliet on the stage and you got something new out of that. But there's also, you know, something to be said for doing it on, on stage. And I think you do both. I'm all for that. But yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm glad to, to have things captured. It's just an interesting question because now the RSC, they, they used, they made a bunch of these hybrid movies. Like they did one of Macbeth with uh, Patrick Stewart and Kate Fleetwood. But now what they seem to be doing is, I mean, if you look at what they did for the last season, it's all live capture. I'd really prefer it if they went back to the hybrid stuff. Yeah. Just in particular comparing 
this to the Cumber Hamlet and just the, you know, the way I felt like I was seeing this in a way it was designed to be seen. You know, just because I wish they'd thought about some of the camera work a little more doesn't mean I don't think that this was far superior to just sticking some cameras somewhere and then switching between them during an actual performance. Because then I always feel like I'm getting stuff filtered through. It's a second best, you know? At least this way, they took an actual stage performance, thought about it, and said, how are we going to make this performance that we've already done workable to someone who can't be here? Instead of saying, you couldn't be here, well, here's the best we're willing to do. So consider this our plea to the RSC to uh, bring back the hybrid. Bring back the hybrid. Bring Bring back the hybrid. Bring back the hybrid, National Theater, take all our money. (laughs) (laughs) All the money. Or in your case, take all Stanford's money. (laughs) I don't know if we cover, like, you wanted to talk humor, Craig, and costumes. You sort of tangentially covered these things. I don't know if there's more that you wanted to cover. So, I mean, one other thing I'd just like to point out is that this was a pretty funny Hamlet, which was much appreciated. Um... I was actually discussing it earlier today with uh, one of my friends, Susan, who uh, noted that, you know, Hamlet can be a very, very long play if Hamlet can't find the humor. And I thought David Tennant did an excellent job of managing to find the humor in the lines uh, and bring it out. And, you know, his Hamlet might have been a little manic. You know, there was the earlier common MA that he maybe never seemed on the verge of suicide. But I kind of appreciated that that interpretation and uh and had some like really good laughs both from polonius hamlet and uh and some of the others too i just love um the what because the when polonius says oh you know what what are you reading and uh <laughs> people sometimes will be like oh words words you know but he's just like words words <laughs> i'm reading I, I like obviously i'm reading words and just uh, willfully misunderstanding what people mean when they say things, um, and just being generally a smart alecky little shit. Like it was, it was great. He was Sass Master Hamlet, which I appreciate. Yeah, one really funny moment was when you know he's sort of tied down in that sketchy back corner with Claudius, and Claudius is questioning him, trying to find out where Polonius is, and once he finds out. Um, the soldiers rush off and he calls out, he will stay until you come. <laughs> He's dead. Um, which was, which was a really funny way to stage that. And, uh, and when they, when he starts getting wheeled off and he goes, Wee! which I was just, when, it, when they started wheeling him off, I just thought to myself, I remember thinking to myself, just please, please say we, please, please. And he did. And it was just, it was great. The shirt, by the way. The one thing I wanted to say about the muscle shirt, apart from the fact that it is just, that's a fantastic garment on its own, and every man should own one. There's that moment early in the play where Hamlet, in all seriousness, is like, but not more like my father than I to Hercules, and then he serves up in the muscle shirt. There's no (laughs) way that's not deliberate. Like, that was just, that was too cute. I just, when I, when I, when I was rewatching recently and I saw the muscle shirt, I thought of the Saturday Night Live sketch um, with Adam Driver as Kylo Ren from Star Wars when he's pretending to be someone else. And he's like, uh, I, uh, someone saw Kylo Ren in the shower and Kylo Ren has an eight pack. Kylo Ren is shredded. And that's exactly, <laughs> like, that's exactly how I felt about it. That I was just like Hamlet being sort of jokily, oh, look, I have an eight pack. Um, but of course he doesn't. And yeah, it just added the fact that he spent so much of the, um, the production in, a t-shirt and jeans also when everyone else is running around in the refinery was really great. Yeah. At first I found it quite jarring. Um, I think it worked in the end, but uh, for like for a minute, I felt like his mom, you know, like, what are you wearing? Put on some shoes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was a moment when I was watching it that it felt a little heavy handed. Like, is this just supposed to be very heavy symbolism of, uh, he's being transparent, but he's not. He's revealing himself, but it's really a cover. Uh, but ultimately, I just found it... Uh, I found the effectiveness to come mostly from just separating him so visually from everyone else in the castle, uh, in court, uh, while also adding that sort of the, like light touch that his Hamlet brings. The, the, I, I'm, I like the phrase Sass Master Hamlet. I think we should popularize it. <laughs> That's it. That's the episode title. <laughs> Oh, what was another? Oh, the, uh, the, um, just little bits where they, 
they made jokes out of very silly kind of Shakespearean things, like um, when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern reply at once, both of them, and they turned it into a, they both accidentally said the same thing at the same moment, and you almost expect them to turn around and go, Jinx! Like, it was it was a strange thing. And yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern definitely had lots of little moments where they kind of looked at each other as if to say, what are you doing? What are you saying? Um, yeah, I, I thought the little touches of humor all the way through really made it bearable because Hamlet can definitely be unbearable. I think the other thing too is that is they did a lot of subtextual picking up on things just in the sense that words didn't necessarily mean what they were saying. And there was really good jobs in the performance where it was clear, like, you know, they were saying one thing, but meaning another, or people were picking up on it in a different way. And part of that often led to humor and then also sometimes led to pathos. And I thought that they did a really good job of treating it as though people don't actually necessarily say what they mean or mean what they say. Okay, on the humor note, Polonius? Polonius was amazing! He was definitely yeah. one of my favorite parts of the production. I like that this Polonius had had it about up to here with Hamlet, and um, just was, like, completely sick of him. Uh, and it gave him an air of authority that sometimes you don't see, because sometimes Polonius is just a sycophant. Whereas this Polonius was like, you're an idiot. Like, I can't believe that I have to deal with you. Especially in the, you know, the cloud dialogue between Hamlet and Polonius, where the third time Polonius doesn't even turn around to, to, to pretend to look at the cloud. He just, Hamlet goes, he thinks just like a whale. And Polonius is like, very like a whale. Your mother wants you. Like, done. Refuses to engage. And, and then, and, and their relationship was so good. I mean, in the, in the player scene during the speech where uh, Polonius keeps interrupting, you're like, oh yes, that's very good. And, and also Hamlet then is, is the one who just like, shh. Like, shut, shut up. Uh, just just so much uh, give and take between them. Although there was that nice moment um, where Hamlet and Polonius are talking before the play. And Poloni- and Hamlet says, you know, I think you were on the stage once. And Polonius is like, oh, yes, I was uh, Caesar. Brutus killed me. <laughs> and Hamlet, sa- I can't remember what exactly Hamlet's line is, but it's usually said it's usually like him just being an enormous jerk to Polonius. But in that case, it was sort of like, he said it as though, Oh, you know, you were a young person once I'm, you know, you must've been, it must've been a loss for you to be killed on the stage. I'm going to choose. I'm going to exercise my option not to be a total jerk to you right now. It was sort of, it was a nice moment of genuinely human interaction between them. When normally all interactions between the two of them are just Hamlet being a jerk and Polonius putting up with it to some degree. I uh, I loved um, just how much he ran with the goes off on rambling tangents thing too. Just like he's talking, he's like, but but ought we to define majesty? You know, and it's sort of like, oh, God. we've all we've all had people like that. Uh, usually old men. We've all had old men like that, uh, and had to talk to them and listen to them. And just the way Gertrude just increasingly like reacts to it, and uh, that the the interaction between the characters and and that scene was just fantastic it's just like you just see him just basking in uh in people listening to him and uh, him pontificate and uh it was it was so funny it was really good i think there's also points where it's like he doesn't even care that nobody's listening to him like there's this where it's like guilt somebody departs and he's like saying farewell after they've already left the stage and i mean a lot of in all of these speeches it's like he has a couple of lines which he clearly says to them and then he's like, oh, that's interesting. And then he's sort of just like talking off into space going on about it, which I think also played as a nice um, parallel to Hamlet in the sense because like Hamlet is also, I mean, Hamlet's fits and starts are much more intelligent. Like they don't just like go off on a shaggy dog story. They just, they, they keep developing, but there's certainly a similarity between how the two of them, you know, go off on different trains of thought. Poor Ophelia, God. (laughs) She has to endure so much mansplaining, it's no wonder she goes nuts. (laughs) Mansplaining and dad joking. Did they boink? Did Horatio and Hamlet boink? There's uh, there's evidence. (laughs) I think Horatio would have liked to have boinked Hamlet, whether it happened or not. Mm. Mm. They like Sometimes they like 
they boinked in the mind, even if they physically didn't boink. They like, you know, there's that there's that intimacy there for sure. Uh-huh. You had Damon I sex. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of mental undressing. <laughs> so that's sort of the end of our discussion on David Tennant Hamlet, directed by Greg Duran. I'm your host, Alex Heaney. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row. You can find me online on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. And my guests today are Caitlin Merriman. I, you can find me on Twitter where I snack a lot, hence my Twitter handle uh, at Caitlin Snark, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K. And uh, Mary Angela Rowe. You can find me on Twitter at Lapsed Victorian, L-A-P-S-E-D, Victorian. Greg Rattan. Uh You can find me on Twitter at C-R-U-T, C-R-U-T. And Noemi Berkowitz. You can find me on Twitter at Noemi Ola, N-O-E-M-I-O-L-A, but I can't promise it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us all on Twitter at 21st Folio, that's 2-1-S-T-F-O-L-I-O, where I will be retweeting tweets that people make about the productions we're watching or other Shakespeare-related snark jokes, etc. And tune in next week for more Shakespeare discussions. And everyone go see this production. Yes. Yes, you can get it. It's actually, if you're in the U.S., it's still online on PBS um, until some point in 2017, so you can find it for free. And you can also get it on DVD. The audio commentary is worth watching, um, especially for the Anecdote about the York skull, um, <laughs> which was a real person's skull that got donated to the production and they had to have it um, <laughs> hang it outside and have like it get pecked at for six months so that it didn't smell anymore. And they had to get like a permit to use it on stage. They couldn't use it in the preview anyway. It's a pretty crazy story. Um, How much so, yeah. do you have to donate to the RSC until they have to use your skull? That's <laughs> <laughs> like for no uh, particular reason asking for a friend. Life goals. Yeah. Yeah, I aspire to that level of Shakespeare notary. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions keep up with the latest episodes don't forget to subscribe to the 21st folio podcast on itunes for show notes and more information about the podcast please visit seventh-row.com that's s-e-v-e-n-t-h-row.com